we've got everybody up here. I'm gonna go ahead and get started. <clears throat> so as Joel said last night, we're gonna be talking about work and rest at the retreat this year. And we picked this topic partly because we hear all of you and we talk about it a lot ourselves. Uh, and also we've noticed that it's been a big topic of conversation in culture lately, uh, especially how millennials, which many of us are, uh, relate to work and what that looks like. And so as I was thinking about this, there's some articles that had come out recently that I was reading, and one of them was from The Atlantic, and it was called, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. And part of what they were talking about is that uh, millennials specifically, but just a lot of people right now, were raised from when they were young to believe that they just had to find their passion, make that their career, and if they can't figure out what it is, if they can't figure out their calling, they just can't stop until they figure it out. You just have to keep working until you can find that perfect career, that perfect calling. Um, and so I don't know if any of you guys relate to that. I feel like I've definitely seen that in a lot of people I've talked with. Uh, and even in myself, I feel that desire, that thing that like, oh, I have to find the thing. Like, it has to be perfect. Um, and one of the interesting things that the article talked about Sorry, we're gonna be using the phone as a clicker, so hopefully I can figure out how to use this. They were talking about how, as economists looked at the 20th century and predicted, like, what is it gonna be like? They had originally predicted, oh, everybody is just gonna have like four day work weeks because no one's gonna to wanna to work because if they don't have to, why would they? But in reality, that's like the opposite of what we're facing right now as a society. So they talk a little bit about why this is, and he says, the economists of the early 20th century did not foresee that work might evolve from a means of material production to a means of identity production. They failed to anticipate that for the poor and middle class, work would remain a necessity, but for the college-educated elite, it would morph into a kind of religion, promising identity, transcendence, and community. Call it workism. So he calls this this idea that work is where we're gonna find our identity, it's gonna bring us this transcendent feeling, uh, it's gonna be our community. He calls it workism, as if it's a new religion. So his uh, definition of workism is that it's the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and of life's purpose. So we're gonna talk a little bit today about what work is and what it isn't. Because in some senses, some of the things I read from this article, I was like, yeah, I can agree with some of these things. I can get behind it. And yet other things, obviously, thinking about work as identity causes some issues from a Christian perspective. So we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about what work is and what it isn't this morning. Uh, and when I say work, I just wanna give a, a quick disclaimer that I don't just mean like you have to get paid, this has to be like a nine to five situation. By work, I mean what you're doing with the majority of your time. So whether you are in an office or whether you uh, are self-employed or whether you stay at home with kids or whether you're a student, whatever it is, that is your work or your job, your vocation, whatever you wanna call it. I'm gonna use the word work just because it'll be easier to kind of just it's a common term, we'll be able to kind of work through it, but uh, I don't just mean something that gives you a paycheck. I mean, whatever you're doing with your time, whatever is your vocation. 
Okay, and the way we're gonna approach this this morning is gonna be a little bit different than we would on a normal Sunday morning. Um, it's gonna be a lot more teachy and a little less preachy. <laughs> uh, and we're gonna do a biblical theology of the idea of work. So a biblical theology is just basically you start in the beginning and work all the way through the end of the Bible and kind of look at what does it say on this topic. So it's gonna be a lot of scripture and I know it's early, but hopefully you guys got some coffee and are ready to, to dive into what scripture has to say about work. Okay, so we are gonna start in creation because that's where the Bible starts. And uh, in the very beginning, we see that God creates everything, right? He creates light and darkness, the sky, the land, vegetation, sun and moon, animals and every kind. And then he creates us, humankind. So on the sixth day of creation, it says God creates people with a very special purpose in mind. So Genesis 1:26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in his image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So this verse, verse 28, is actually what a lot of people, a lot of scholars call the cultural mandate. Basically just this idea that this is what humankind is called to do. This is their vocation. This is what we're given as a purpose. And you see that we're given work. We are called to work. We're called to increase in number, to be fruitful, which translates roughly to just be productive. It doesn't just mean have kids. Uh, I know that's kind of what I thought when I was growing up. Um, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over. So there's this idea of organizing, of ruling, of um, just kind of working, really, is what we see. And up until this point in scripture, uh, the pattern is that God creates something, and then he declares it is good. Yeah, and so we are still at that point where God is declaring things good. So work is created to be good. Uh, and if you guys want to follow along, I forgot to tell you this, there's notes um, on the second page, I think, page two. Uh, if you want to take notes, that's helpful to you, you can. So we see that work was created good. And I know that we like to joke that work is a four-letter word, or you know, we like to complain about it. It's not always the most fun. Uh, but we see here that creation up until this point is perfect. It's literally paradise. <laughs> and work is a part of that. It is not, it's not after the fall. It doesn't happen after sin enters the world. But it happens before. This is a part of what God had in mind when he created humanity and when he created his good and perfect world. So what else do we learn about work here? We see that we are created in the image of God. Sorry. Ah, new clicker problems. Okay. Uh, we are created in the image of God. Work, uh, God is working, right? He is creating the earth. He's doing all of this different creative work. And then he creates us to be made in his image. So we are created to work as well. And if work is good enough for God, who is the ultimate being, then I think it's good enough for us, right? I think this gives us a picture that work is a dignified thing. If God is doing it, then it must be 
dignified. It must be worthy. And it's interesting if you look at other creation myths from different cultures, they definitely have a different perspective on work. So think about like Pandora's box, if you've heard that expression or that idea. Uh, in Pandora's box, you know, they open the box and all of these evils come out of it. And work is actually one of the evils that comes out of the box. So in that idea, they really see work as something that's bad. Uh, and there's other ones too where there's the Enuma Elish, if you guys have heard of that one. Uh, it's another creation myth from that, from the same time period uh, as the Bible. And in that story, work was too demeaning for God. He couldn't, you know, do that. I was too below, too beneath him. So he creates humans to, like, clean up the place, basically. Like, oh, you're my hired help. Just go and do all the work for me. So we see that our creation, our creation story, says that work is actually a good thing. It is part of uh, being made in the image of God, and it's dignified. We also see that it's part of our DNA, right? It's from the very creation of humankind. It's a part of what we're called to do. And I think that this is one of those things that does make sense about our current culture, because we do see that people feel this calling to work, to do something. Uh, in that same article I referenced earlier, one of the things that the author said is that as in the same way that many Christians choose to go to church on a Sunday morning, many millennials are choosing to go to the office because it's where they feel most like themselves. I don't know if anyone can relate to that, but just this idea that when you're at work, that's, you feel like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, and it feels right. And in some ways, that's, there's truth to that, right? This is a part of our DNA. We were called to work and to work in the image of God, uh, but we're going to see very quickly after this that gets distorted, and we have to live in that distortion now. But there is a part of it that, as humans, we are called to work. We also see that this is an issue of, of stewardship. Uh, God creates this amazing world with, you know, this beautiful sky and sea and all these animals, and then he creates humans and then hands it all off to them and says, here, I want you to rule over this. Uh, and as I was thinking about that, I was like, man, that's in some ways might feel like you have a baby and then you just like hand it off to someone and say, here you go, now you get to like take care of this. Uh, and that's like a huge noble responsibility, right, to take on caring for a child is a big deal. And we've been given the responsibility of caring for the entire earth. <laughs> so it's a big issue of stewardship. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind when we think about work as well. And what is that responsibility? That responsibility is to be cultivators and creators. So as you see, as we saw in the Genesis passage, we're not just called to create new things, but we're also called to care for the things that God has already made. And so there's this aspect of keeping, of protecting what is good and what God has already made, and then also an aspect of being fruitful, being productive, and creating new things that continue to bear God's image. All right, so one other thing to note in the beginning is that there isn't this separation between like, oh, this is my work life, and then this is my, you know, my faith life or my life with God. It was all just one thing. There was no separation. And in Genesis 2, the, work, or the word that they use for work is actually this word adoba, and it's translated to work, worship, or service. So all these things kind of come together. And there's this idea that all aspects of life kind of fall under this idea of adoba. You're worshiping God in what you're doing, you're working, you're creating, you're serving, 
Uh, it's all one thing. There isn't this like compartmentalization that we have now in modern society. So hold on to that idea. We're going to come back to it as we kind of continue to work through scripture. But as I said earlier, uh, we are going to get to the fall, which is where sin enters and distorts our view of work. So before the fall, still in Genesis, uh, before sin enters, we see that the idea of work is for God's glory and for the common good. And we're going to come back to this as well, uh, but we see that it's there to bear God's, we're, we're there to bear God's image in the work that we do to bring him glory in reflecting him. Um, and we're also there to steward the earth well for the common good of others. With Adam and Eve, it's just the two of them to start out, but uh, as you know, it grows bigger. And so there's this aspect of serving others as well. And all of that gets distorted in Genesis 3, uh, where it says, cursed is the, so we get this, the idea of the fall, where sin enters the world, Adam and Eve choose to, um, they choose themselves over following God, and, uh, and they distort their work as image bearers when they make the choice to sin. So even though they already bear the image of God, the serpent convinces them that they need to be more like God. And so they go against God, and this is their consequence. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So we see that work is affected by the fall. It's kind of one of those things. Again, I said we're going to talk about what work is and what it isn't. Work is created good, and it also is created by, or is affected by the fall. So work still, in this case, provides for their needs. They're still getting food. They're still able to do the work that they've been given to do. Uh, but it's definitely made harder. So God doesn't come in and say, oh, you messed up. I'm just going to take this job away from you and do it myself. But he does come down, and it, it makes it more complicated. And I know that many of you, and myself included, feel this because I hear our common complaints about work. And so I made a list of just things that I've heard from people uh, about why work is hard or what makes it difficult, and I, just to see if you guys resonate with these. So one of them being that it's boring. Um, I hear a lot about the imposter syndrome, which I had not heard it called that before, but just this idea that you're feeling like everyone else is better at your job than what you're doing, um, that you're not actually supposed to be there, you're the imposter in the situation. Uh, unemployment or not being able to find a job that you want to be working in is a big part of it. Having toxic work environments, hear about that a lot, just bad coworkers or systems that are broken within your workplace that just create a really difficult environment to work in. It's just not the job you pictured you would have at this point in life. Uh, feeling like you don't measure up in your work. Anxiety, exhaustion, burnout, being really busy, working too much, or on the flip side, maybe not getting enough hours, uh, and just not feeling fulfilled by the work that you're doing. So I don't know if you relate to these, but we can definitely see the effects of the fall in the work that we do. Uh, and not only that the work is affected, but our attitudes towards it is affected as well, right? Just the fact that we have all these things that we feel like work is not fulfilling for us or we're frustrated by shows that we have a, a broken attitude towards work a lot of the time too. And so as you continue through scripture, which like I said, we're going to kind of try to move through the whole Bible and look at this, uh, we see this play out very few chapters later in Genesis 11. Um, 
yeah, sorry, I'm not this clicker. I'm having a hard time staying with it. But uh, like I said, work is affected by the fall. It's inefficient. I know a lot of you love efficiency, so it probably drives you nuts that your work is not efficient. Uh, it's toilsome. It can be unpleasant. Okay, so Genesis 11, uh, these group of people come together and they want to build a tower. Seems innocent, right? But as you read through it, you start to see how some of the brokenness of our view of work comes into it. So they say, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Hey, they're being creators. They are doing something in the image of God. This seems like a good thing, right? Uh, and then they say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So it all seems like good, right? They're creating. They're doing what they're called to do until you realize that their whole motivation for it is to make a name for themselves. So remember, I just talked about how work is supposed to be for God's glory and for the common good. And here we see, we don't see anything because the PowerPoint disappeared. Um, but here we see in Genesis 11 that they're going against both of those things, right? It's supposed to be for God's glory. And they're saying, come, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make this about us. Uh, and then it's supposed to be for the common good. They, the cultural mandate in Genesis uh, 128 says, go, go out, be fruitful, be productive, spread out fill the earth, subdue it, do all these things. And instead of doing that, they're like, let's stay here. Let's consolidate our power. If we all work together, then we will be unstoppable, right? They're saying, let's put all of our power into one instead of saying, let's go out and do that in the world. So they want to make a name for themselves and they want to concentrate their power uh, for themselves out of fear, right? It said for fear that they would be scattered. One of the commentaries I read said that, like Adam and Eve before them, they intend to use the creative power they possess as image bearers of God to act against God's purposes. Instead of exploring the fullness of the name God gave them, humankind, they decide to make a name for themselves. And God sees that their arrogance and ambition are out of bounds. So the next part of the story is that God comes down. He says, nope, I'm stopping this tower building project right here. And he scatters them, and that's where you get all the different languages, right? So he spreads them out because they weren't doing it on their own. And so uh, you see that God sees that their idea of what work is is flawed. It's wrong. And so he says, I'm going to come down, and I'm going to try to help them out, right? I'm going to try and make it so that they understand and do their calling more effectively. And as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, you really just see this happen over and over and over again. I had other parts of scripture that I thought about pulling out, but I realized that at some point that it all just kind of starts to become the same. They fall into this pattern of wanting to make names for themselves, of wanting to make these decisions on their own, uh, and not working for God's glory and for the common good. And so it can seem at this point when you're reading through it, especially when you get to books in the middle, like Judges, where it says, everybody just did what was right in their own eyes, and you're like, all hope is lost. I don't know how we're ever going to get back to this idea uh, of the cultural mandate of working for God's glory. Uh, they just continue to make bad decision after bad decision. And that's where Jesus steps in. So I'm going to jump to the New Testament. Uh, and Jesus steps in to fix the mess that we made. God sends his only son. He sends Jesus to become a man to take on the work that we could never fulfill. So Jesus comes to live fully human to work for the glory of God and for the common good, 
He comes to cultivate what God created good and to recreate us into a new humanity. So we see this in some ways in Jesus' death on the cross. In John 19, it says that Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Uh, as we're getting ready to think about Good Friday and Easter, this is something that it's just really been impacting me, that Christ would come down to live as a man and to live in humankind's footsteps uh, because we were not able to do the work that we were called to do. And in doing this, he takes the curse on for us. Uh, remember, as you talked about in the curse, it said that there will be thorns that come up from the ground and make your work difficult. And then here in John 19, we see that instead of those thorns making the work more difficult, Jesus takes those thorns in his death. Hebrews 2 talks about it in another way. Uh, he says that, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. So he's talking here about creation, right? About humankind being made uh, and to, they were made lower than the angels, basically just talking about earth, right? We were put on earth. Uh, we are crowned with glory and honor and put everything under our feet. This is when God says, I'm giving you all of creation to rule over, to subdue, uh, to have dominion over. And it says, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. So this is crazy, right? This idea that all of the earth is subject to humankind. And yet, at present, in the present of when Hebrews was written, but also still true now, we do not see everything subject to them, right? So there's this, uh, this disconnect between how creation was set up and how we experience it now, which we just talked about is from the fall. But the author of Hebrews goes on to say, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So this is kind of like, it's a lot of logic to follow at this early in the morning. But if you think about it, the author of Hebrews is saying that God created it so that we would have dominion over all of these things, that nothing would be uh, left that is not subject to them, to humans. And we obviously don't do what we're supposed to do, right? We mess it up. And so he sends Jesus to be a man, to be lower than the angels for a little while. But because Jesus suffered death for all of us, he lived the perfect life. He did exactly what we were called to do but couldn't and then dies for us. We get to participate in that. He comes and does all of the things that we were supposed to do and could never do. So he takes our thorns and he redeems our work. Uh, and in the notes, you'll see I said that it's partially redeemed uh, because we do still have to deal with the thorns currently, right? It says that yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. So we're kind of in this strange time where some people call it the already not yet, right? We've already had Jesus come, die for our sins, die for our inability to do the work that we're supposed to do, uh, but we're not yet experiencing it as fully redeemed. But in Jesus, we can trust in his perfect work. We no longer have to work for our identity. We no longer have to bow down to the idol of workism because Christ has already completely removed that from us. Uh, he has already completely removed the thorns. He has fulfilled the perfect identity of what humanity was supposed to be. And so in him, we can trust in his work instead of working for our own. 
And I know that it can be hard uh, to know this and to feel like we don't have to make a name for ourselves in our work. And that's why someone named Oz Guinness kind of talks about it. He separates them into two callings. So he talks about work in a way that helps us remember that on one hand, Christ has already done the work for us, and yet on the other hand, we're still called to do good work. And so he talks about primary and secondary callings. So in Christ, our primary calling is to him, for him, and by him. So at first, we're called to someone. Because Christ has already done the work, he's already fulfilled all of the callings that we have been given, we no longer have to work for it. So our primary calling is always to Christ. It's not to do something, it's to a person. And then our secondary calling is more of that specific work that we've been called to do. So it's called to something or somewhere, and it's this idea that we are to work as if we are working for the Lord, because we are. Uh, Colossians 3.23 talks about that. So this is a helpful way to think about it if you tend to think or if you tend to fall into the trap of looking at work as your identity, as your primary calling. And when you think about this, you have to remember they always have to be in that order. It always has to be Christ first, work second. So it's really important to keep these callings in the proper order. And yet, at the same time, one of the dangers of separating them into two callings is that we can tend to separate them too much. We can tend to think of, oh, there's, you know, that's the sacred, that first calling is the sacred calling, and then the second calling is the secular calling, right? The, the calling to God, that's the one that really matters, and my calling to work is just whatever, right? It's just this thing I have to do to make money, or it's this thing I have to do to get by. But the truth is, as we saw in Genesis, is that they're actually supposed to be connected, right? Remember that idea of adoba, of worshiping of God, working, serving, as all one idea, one seamless thing that we're called to do. So the hard part about these two callings is that you have to keep them in order. You cannot let the, the secondary calling eclipse the first. But we also can't separate them too much. Because this idea that working for the Lord, right? I get people sometimes will say to me and Joel, like, oh, you are just doing the Lord's work by planting a church and by being in ministry. And on one hand, yeah, we are. But so are all of you. <laughs> no matter where you're working, you are also doing the Lord's work. That is what it says in Genesis, that we are called to work and to subdue the earth and to be productive in whatever we're doing, to work as if we are always working for the Lord. So that's where we can't separate these two callings too much because as much as some days it might feel like, oh man, I don't feel like I am like connecting with God in any of the work I'm doing. Maybe I should just quit my job and move to Africa and become a missionary. Hey, if you really feel called to be a missionary, I, that is awesome. Let's talk about that. But that is not going to fix this problem. <laughs> it is not going to fix your problem of not enjoying your work or of feeling like you're putting too much of your identity in your work. Trust me, as someone in ministry, it is just as hard to keep these in order as it would be in any other job. I can make my job that I do for the church just as much of an idol, just as much of an identity as any other job I might be doing. So we are all doing the Lord's work. So next time someone says that to me, I'm just going to say, hey, yeah, you are too, because we all are. We are all one people doing the Lord's work. Uh, and one of the things that Dorothy Sayers, if, you've, uh, if you're familiar with her, she 
uh, was alive a long time ago. She was one of C.S. Lewis' contemporaries. Um, she's actually the first woman to go to Oxford, which is kind of cool. Uh, but she wrote an essay called Why Work that has been really influential. And one of the best quotes, I think, from it is she says, the only Christian work is good work well done. So if you think about this, and I've heard it explained before, you think about, like, what's the most God-honoring way for a pilot to do his job? What do you think? Land the plane. Land the plane, yes. So to think about it, right? Like, if you're flying in an airplane, I, the best thing I want from that pilot, the best, like, most God-honoring way that he could do his job is to fly the plane safely and to land it, right? Or think about doctors. What's the best way, what's the most God-honoring way for a doctor or like a cardiac surgeon, what's the best way that they can do their job that honors God the most? It's to do it well, right? To do the work that they are set out to do. And I think that we can think that when it comes to big occupations, like, oh yeah, well, it makes sense that a pilot, like, yeah, they need to land the plane. Um, or it makes sense for a surgeon. But it's the same for any of the work that we're doing. The best work that you can do, the most God-honoring work you can do, is to work as if you're working for the Lord in every single thing you're doing. So what does this look like? It can look like a lot of things, whether it's creating order and organization in your home uh, because God's an or a God of order and not of chaos, or discipling your children and creating more of the image of God in the world, whether it's helping restore people's bodies through physical therapy or other medicine, uh, working productively or fruitfully at the task you've been given, even if it's a task that you don't particularly love. When you work hard at it, that's a God-honoring way to do it. Maybe it's building a positive team culture that reflects Christ's love uh, in your workplace. Maybe it's teaching children. We've got a lot of teachers here, uh, and I think high schoolers still count as children, so, <laughs> uh, so that they can grow up and shape the world for the next generation. Even if it's things like serving others by making them food or coffee, it's a very important job, right? We all benefited greatly from getting coffee and food this morning. And if we didn't have people who were doing that and serving us in that way, that would cause a big problem in how we do our, how we live our lives. Or whether it's repairing or restoring houses, cultivating the beauty that's already in them. I could really go on and on and pick every profession that we all have in this room, uh, because some, every job has some aspect of this. If your job doesn't because your company is corrupt or something like that, there's a lot of bad things going on, let's talk. <laughs> uh, but for the most part, I feel pretty safe saying that everybody's job here uh, has some aspect of um, what we're called to do and how we're called to work in a way that is God-honoring. Uh, and work, work for God's glory and for the common good wherever you are, even if you don't love your job. And I know that this part's hard, right? Because we want to have that fulfilling calling. We want to have something that just feels like, yeah, I feel like my, most myself when I'm doing this job. And I love what I'm doing. And honestly, I would love that that were the case for everybody. But I know that it's not. And it won't always be. And even a job that you love and feels like it's the most fulfilling job in the world is going to have parts of it that are not fun. Every job has them, uh, whether it's paperwork, for some of us, or maybe it's talking to people for other people, whatever part of the job that you don't enjoy, <laughs> every job is gonna have an aspect of that. Uh, but when we're working as if we're working for the Lord in all aspects of our job, I guarantee you that it will feel more fulfilling. I'm not promising that it will feel more fun <laughs> or more enjoyable, but you will find purpose in it. Even in the most meaningless tasks, working as if you're working for God's glory and for the common good, 
gives us a purpose behind what we're doing. Okay, so I said that Jesus partially redeems our work, uh, and we only got through about three quarters of the Bible so far, so let's move to the end, and let's look at how the Bible says that the story of, of work is going to end. So in the book of Revelation, John is given a vision of what the new heavens and the new earth will look like. He's given a vision of paradise, basically. And he says in Revelation 21, 10, and he carried me away in the spirit, so this is him going to have his vision, to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So if you think about how the story started, we started out in a garden, and that's kind of when we think of paradise, I think we tend to think more of that, like, idyllic garden, everything's beautiful, it's very peaceful kind of a situation. Uh, but here we see in the end that it's a city. So we don't have this full circle of we're going back to a garden, but we're actually going towards a city. Uh, and if you think about cities, that's the place where a lot of work happens, right? There's a lot of, it's a cultural center. There's a lot happening there. So we're going to go on and see more of what the city looks like. It says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So something to pay attention here that it's easy to kind of skip over, but in verse 26, it says, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. So you think about what does that mean? Why are these things being brought into paradise or into the new heavens and new earth? And a lot of people, when they read this, they actually think that this has to do with work. So in Isaiah 60, which I kind of skipped over because, like I said, you kind of see this pattern happen over and over in the Old Testament. But in Isaiah 60, they are also given a vision of what paradise will look like or what the new heavens and the new earth will look like. And as part of what he's talking about in Isaiah 60 is that all of these people that are in the nation, the farmers, the metal workers, I'm trying to remember, all of these different fields of work there are bringing their best work into this paradise, into the new heavens and the new earth. So we see that there's some aspect of work in heaven. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure what this looks like. I don't think that we really, of all the things we know about heaven, don't think we're given a lot of details. Um, and so my guess is probably as good as anybody else's. And honestly, I think it's going to be so different from anything that we can anticipate on our own that it's not really worth getting into like, will there be golf in heaven, that kind of stuff. I don't know. But we do see that there's, there seems to be work in heaven. So in the same way that work was a part of paradise in the very beginning, it seems like it will also be a part of paradise in the end. Uh, and the best work is being brought into it. Uh, as we go on in Revelation, uh, it says that the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. 
The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. So we see that work is going to be a part of this, but we see that it's going to look different than what it looks like now. Because I think some of you probably heard me say, yeah, there's going to be work in heaven, and you're like, I don't, what? (laughs) That's not what I want. But we see that it's going to be totally different. There's going to be this seamless integration of worshiping God, working for his glory, and serving for the common good all together. We see that uh, the, the tree there is for the healing of the nations and that there's no longer any curse. So all of the things that make our work difficult and make our work hard and inefficient and toilsome right now, all of that will be removed. And honestly, I don't even think that we can fathom what that would be like, right? Like even my best picture of what work might be with no thorns or no difficulties still probably won't be the most amazing version of it that it could be without any curse. Like, I just don't even think we have a concept of what that could mean. But we see that it's going to be true. We see that work will be fully redeemed. Clicker, come on. There we go. Uh, It's going to be fully redeemed. It's going to be a part of paradise. It's a part of our future. Uh, It's going to be about worship, right? This whole description of Revelation, it's all about how God is just there with us and we are worshiping him in everything we do. This idea of faith and work being separated, it's just not even a concept in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, It's part of reward, right? The best work gets brought in. I don't know exactly what that means, but just thinking about the best things that we create in the image of God and the best things that are cultivated, they're going to be brought into the new heavens and the new earth. And there's this idea of unity, right? This idea that the serving and going out and being productive and filling the earth and subduing it was supposed to be this great thing that continued peace in the world and order and unity. And yet we see it gets very divided very quickly. In the Tower of Babel, we see that they become more focused on themselves and keeping their own group safe than they do about working together. And we see that in the new heavens and new earth, that will all be resolved and that it will be all... Uh, fully redeemed, and that it'll be a place for unity for everyone, for all the nations. And so as I wrap up, uh, we're going to move into a time of you're going to go to your discussion groups and you'll talk through some different questions. Uh, But I want us to think about that analogy that Joel used last week uh, in his sermon, right, about the 3D drawing. He talked about this idea of when you draw something and you're trying to make it look 3D, you're supposed to use this uh, vanishing point, I think it's called, And it's this point on the horizon somewhere. So if you're drawing it, you draw a line, and then you draw your little box. And then you draw all of your corners of your box to try and meet that point on the horizon. And that helps give shape to what's in the present, right? The the point in the future, the point on the horizon, gives shape to what it looks like in the present. And I think that that can be very true of our work as well. So I want us to think about... What it, how would our work change? What would our work look like in the present if we had that picture, that picture of revelation, of unity and worship of God in your work and all of it being one big thing where it's a seamless integration between working for God's glory and serving others for the common good. Uh, if we had that idea of what work is going to look like in the future in our minds, And if we let that shape how we view work now, what would that do? How would that change the way we approach Monday morning or whatever time frame you work? 
how would it help us to work as if we're working for God's glory and not for making a name for ourselves, not for getting a better title or for making more money or having a better office? Um, how would it change if we work for the common good of all people, if we have that picture of the healing of all the nations and the unity of everybody? How would it change how we cultivate what's good in our work, what's already there, seeing the, the positive and the things that God's already come before us and doing in our work? And then creating in the image of God, creating new things that help, whether that's creating team dynamics or creating new products, literally. Some of you guys, the three Emmers, maybe are making actual new things. How would it change how we live a life where our faith seamlessly integrates with our work? Because we are resting in Christ's finished work and know that we are living out a calling as if we're working for him instead of for ourselves. So I have some discussion questions for you guys that are a little bit more specific and kind of get into more, what would that actually look like for you in your context? Uh, and then some of the questions are also going to get you ready for Joel's talk, which is going to be about rest. So you'll notice that kind of the first half of the questions have more to do with work, and the second half have more to do with rest. So get through as many